Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Hopes are high that an omnibus spending measure in March will avert a full-year continuing resolution. All eyes are on whether Russia will invade Ukraine after the Beijing Winter Olympics end and whether the entire episode marks a long-overdue wake-up call for Washington and the West. Why it's important to more harshly punish nations that violate international norms, whether in global affairs or at the Olympics, and an action-packed week in Asia with the Quad looking more like an alliance and the administration preparing to roll out its Indo-Pacific strategy that includes an important new Pacific partnership. Joining us to discuss all that and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Iron Mike Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who, among his many affiliations, counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, thanks so very much uh, for uh, joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Huntington Ingalls Industries sponsored our coverage of the Surface Navy Association's recent conference and trade show. And check out two of our weekly podcasts, our Cavus Ships podcast hosted by our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime issues each week. And tune in for the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at all things space. Everybody, welcome back uh, again. Iron Mike, start us uh, off. Uh, a lot of activity on the, on the Hill, uh, and you still remain optimistic that um, a full-year disaster will be averted. The floor is yours. Thank you. And yes, I do. And my optimism is being rewarded because uh, we're on the right path. The House passed the continu continuing resolution on Tuesday by a very big uh, bipartisan vote, 272 to 162. Uh, and they, the CR, as we discussed, will go through March 11th, which gives them about three weeks uh, to wrap everything up. Um, now, there is one little snag that we will get passed, but the Senate uh, was unable to pass the CR this week. Uh, but Schumer does plan to pass it next week. Right now, uh, Senator Marsha Blackburn has put a hold on the CR uh, because of a story that was reported in the Washington uh, Free Beacon that uh, said that the Department of Health and Human Services has been including crack pipes and other drug paraphernalia in smoking kits that are provided under a federal uh, harm reduction grant program. And apparently, according to the Washington Free Beacon, the HHS uh, spokesman admitted that and says these kits will provide pipes for users to smoke crack cocaine, uh, crystal meth, and any illicit substance. Uh, the White House then had to come out and contradict all that, uh, but Marsha Blackburn isn't buying those denials and has placed a hold on the CR until this is resolved to her satisfaction. Uh, so I'm still confident that they will resolve that issue and the CR will get passed next week. Now, I, I, don't know, I don't know the details of this, but this is a little bit like clean needle programs, right? I mean, ultimately, for in, in the sense of fairness, even if that is going on, I remember growing up in New York City where that was done in order to be able to control, uh, you know, the spread of AIDS, hepatitis and other, you know, communicable diseases. For what it it does sound like that. I, I agree. I don't know the details of this either. I just learned about this uh, yesterday and it's being reported on again, again this morning, uh, just as another wrench. But like I always say, you know, we, we always get there. It's painful, but we always get there. So I believe that we will get there. Yeah. So uh, this CR uh, is an extension of the last one which will take us, as I mentioned earlier, through March 11th. Uh, which is about three weeks. And um, I'm optimistic that they will get uh, the omnibus done by then. Uh, the Actually, there was an announcement earlier this week, I think about a day or two ago, that the, the appropriations leaders in the House and the Senate have agreed uh, to top line numbers. Now, they have not released what they are, uh, but they have an agreement. And now the committee staff can work together to conference those 12 bills. It looks like they have agreement on some of the policy issues. And uh, you know, it's believed that the Hyde Amendment uh, will survive. I mean, things that should be of no surprise, but were painful to get there. Uh, and, um, you know, this whole discussion of parity, we interesting to see how that pans out, because apparently that was a sticking point that has been agreed to. But uh, we're hearing that the defense number will be even higher than what was agreed to in the NDAA. So it was a $25 billion increase over the president's budget request, 
from what we're hearing, it's going to be even higher than that, maybe upwards of $30 billion uh, as a way to get to, to parity. So, um, you know, we'll see as, as the weeks progress, but I think that we will have an omnibus and, and be on our way. Now, look, I think it's good news, but at the same time, you know, the, the Department of Defense did have to suffer under a continuing resolution uh, for almost half of the fiscal year. Um, now, the next thing, you know, one thing we talked about last week was the Russia sanctions. And, you know, it seemed that they were making some good progress there. But unfortunately, uh, senators acknowledged yesterday that they really uh, kind of hit an impasse. And even though they're working hard on a bipartisan level and they met with uh, the German chancellor when he was in D.C. early this week to get his advice on this, there seems to be two sticking points in getting the sanctions bill done. One is the structure of the Nord Stream 2 sanctions. And the second one is this so-called secondary sanctions on Russian banks that apparently would impact European markets. So many European officials have appealed directly to senators to express their concern over this provision, arguing that those punishments against Russia would have uh, significant impacts in their countries as well. So that is kind of slowed down, but the, at least it continues to work on a bipartisan basis. I'm confident eventually they will figure that out. And I know I promised I wouldn't talk about BBB anymore, but it amazes me how many Democrats I spoke to earlier this week that still thought that BBB was alive. Uh, although we saw yesterday's inflation numbers, so Joe Manchin came out again for the hundredth time and killed BBB. And what a lot of people aren't talking about, too, is the fact that Senator Ben Ray Lujan from New Mexico, a Democrat, uh, had a stroke earlier this month. So right. he's out of commission for a while. And without him, the Democrats can't pass anything in the Senate without Republican support. Um, I would I, I pointed this out to my Democratic friends who want to be nice and deliberative about a Supreme Court uh, justice and that they're going to get somebody in position by September. I, I would just like to urge them you're one banana peel away from not being able to get a Supreme Court justice. There is no doubt in my mind that Republicans are going to stop that uh, until like 2025 if they can. So, um, you know, just just a warning. You, you've got a tenuous grip on power. <laughs> Make sure Luhan is sitting there. Make sure that nothing happens to Leahy or anybody else. Got a couple of these guys and have a car accident. You're it's it's from a Democratic perspective. It's all over. Uh, and I, I don't mean to make uh, light of that. Let me just very briefly. We have so much uh, more to talk about, but I have to get your uh, sense on this. There seems after utter and complete gridlock, um, uh, Michael, a sudden lurch forward on a whole series of actually legislative initiatives. Right. I mean, on sexual assault. Uh, is there that's um, moving uh, forward. And uh, we're even seeing on, um, you know, a, a ban on lawmakers being able to make stock trades even starting to make progress, right? I mean, because I think, you know, lawmakers in both parties are getting a lot of heat, not just on that issue, but actually to show that they can actually govern and legislate on stuff. I mean, is this sort of give you a little bit of hope that um, that folks are actually sort of coming to grips with the fundamental reality they're up there to pass legislation for the American people? Or is that uh, yeah, just an optical illusion? <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think there's always been a core group of folks up there that feel that is their job to make America a better place and pass legislation for the American people. And then you've got fringes on both sides that want to be uh, social media stars instead of really actually getting things done. Um, you know, look, it remains to be seen whether these, these changes to um, – members and senators being able to buy stocks really, really does happen. Uh, you know, Pelosi was against it, but now she's for it. Uh, but it does have to get 60 votes in the Senate. I don't think that's going to be uh, so easy. And yeah, look, that's nice. But again, I don't see how that puts, you know, food on people's tables and lowers inflation and solves the problems that really matter to American voters. Uh, so uh, I'm not too excited about that one. Um, uh, Jim, uh, let's uh, shift over to uh, Russia, Ukraine. Obviously, all eyes are on whether the Russians are going to invade. Uh, there are um, joint uh, Russian uh, exercise. There are joint Russian exercises in Belarus now. There's a, uh, a Russian Navy battle group uh, that includes amphibious units uh, that just pulled into Sevastopol. Uh, so there is this sense that you know Russia is continuing to build up forces. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, remain nonplussed, making the argument: Look, we're a nation of 41. One million people, you know, if they send 150,000 people in here, it's going to be a bloodbath, but a lot of Russians are going to die uh, as, as well. Um, you know, Russians clearly have superiority to be able to do a shock and awe kind of operation with, with long range strike and, and, and the like, um, irrespective of whether he in, invades or not. Uh, ultimately, th this seems to be an inflection point um, that people are coming to grips with you know, this administration, you know, as a, as a nonpartisan friend of mine observed, this administration is working to clean up sort of 20 years of bad behavior on stuff. And you don't flip a light switch and have it changed. 
Uh, I think the administration has made an enormous amount of progress in bringing the alliance together to better uh, stand up. We discussed that last week. Um, you know, and then there's the the, the Russia-China uh, pact, uh, effectively, right, which, which you know, has been uh, maybe in the shadows, but now much more, you know, in, in the forefront. It, is this is this an aha moment? Is this an inflection point? Is this the moment that even if Vladimir Putin doesn't invade, people wake up? Or will this be, look, as soon as this thing goes back to normal, um, you know, we, we get back to business as usual? Well, you know, I have to say, Vago, I think it's the latter. <laughs> I mean, I've, I just have been amazed whether it's talking to folks uh, from Europe or a lot of colleagues here in Washington, there's still this disbelief that anything's going to happen. Uh, I, I can I, I can understand that. Uh, but uh, for I think people who do Europe and NATO and do Russia and we're a small but tight knit group, uh, you know, as we talk about this and, and we, you know, begin to, you know, see the closing phase of this buildup. Uh, just to sit here and, and not see this as an inflection point, uh, you know, is just uh, almost criminal. But, but, but I think in Washington, what we're going to see is the Asia hands, uh, those that have already said it's China first, China always. Uh, they're going to try to say, look, there's nothing happening in Europe uh, and uh, we will go back to normal if something does happen, you know. And so they're going to try to, uh, you know, keep their their priority in terms of handling the Indo-Pacific is the, is the number one priority. I'm not sitting here saying that it shouldn't be, uh, but it's, but unfortunately is we're going to have to do both. Uh, and I think getting just some of the uh, inside the beltway folks here to understand that we can do both. We have to do both. It's going to be expensive. We might have to tear up the drafts of the national security strategy and redo it a bit, but we're going to have to do that. We can't just park Russia, which I think the administration really wanted to do. They brought in a very heavy, uh, uh, you know, group to do uh, Asia and China. Uh, and, um, and these folks aren't letting go uh, of, of what they see as their priority. The, the Europe group has, was not quite as strong bureaucratically. They're, they're getting a bit stronger, but it wasn't the priority. And so, right. uh, and I'm not, I'm not here being a cheerleader for my little community of, of Europeanists, but I'm just saying that this is a really serious situation we've got there in Ukraine, Russia right now. And, and whatever happens post Ukraine, Putin is not gonna go away. It's not going to go back to business as usual, whatever business as usual even means. So we've got to take that into account. And I think we've just we've got to stop the, the sniping and the squabbling. And it's going to get worse when they start looking at the defense budget. I said this a few times ago, you know, we're, there's going to have to be some uh, balance brought into where we put our force posture now. So I just I think we need to just uh, focus on this and understand that we've got a strategic situation now that calls for balancing two theaters of operation, and we might as well grit our teeth and get on with it. Um, I, I should point out, right? Julie Smith uh, is uh, the NATO ambassador. Was talking to a friend in Brussels, and she's getting very very high marks during this uh, conflict. And obviously, somebody who was a national security advisor to Biden when when he was vice president. So somebody who does have the president's ear, uh, even if she's in an, in an outpost uh, distant uh, from him. And I would also point out that French President Emmanuel Macron is making the case for European investment in hard power um, specifically, and I think very thoughtfully that this is an inflection point and that the United States is the only nation with the capabilities to be able to be in the Western Pacific. And so it makes sense for the Europeans to make that investment in hard power, to fill a void left as the Americans go and focus on the other side of the planet, and that Europeans uh, pick up uh, the pace uh, in the Mediterranean, in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Europe uh, more, more generally. Uh, and I'm told that that's a topic that the, the President and, and uh, uh, Biden and Macron have discussed. Uh, Dove, if if this is an aha moment, right, and Jim suggest, you know thinks that it's it's not, does this administration change its sort of the approach that it's it's had of, um, and and the West has tended to have, right, conflict avoidance, talk to talk, keep talking to talk, uh, that sanctions are the most important tool, as opposed to realizing that in the end of the day, you know, it comes down to will. I know I keep asking this question, but will and hard power capabilities. Is this going to change? The administration's no, calculus? No, no, I'm with Jim. Uh, it's not going to change. Uh, and especially if Putin succeeds just in taking a slice of Ukraine, which is what I've said all along, 
because then the Germans are not going to do anything about Nord Stream 2, and Putin will have successfully divided Germany even further from the United States. Uh, look, uh, do we have a sense, have we gotten any reporting that the uh, fiscal 23 defense budget has been plussed up in the last couple of weeks or, uh, or month uh, by OMB and DOD because of what's going on? I think we know the answer. The answer is no. And so it looks like the fiscal 23 budget will come in below the 740. And as uh, Michael said, they may plus it up even higher on the Hill. And what kind of a message is that going to mean uh, or rather uh, send? And so, uh, no, I, I think this administration is locked in. And by the way, they're being boxed in in a lot of ways. I don't think they've even begun to think about, nor has the Hill. For instance, if secondary sanctions are laid on regarding financial issues, that's going to allow the Chinese to go to the Europeans and say, look, we need a different reserve currency because you're being blackmailed by the United States. Right. There are some real problems with constantly relying just on sanctions. But unfortunately, I think it's so hardwired into the leading people in this administration, including the president, that I don't see very much change at all. And uh, it really concerns me because uh, a lower defense budget than what Congress has come in for 22 is going to send the wrong message to everybody, to the bad guys, to the people sitting on the fence, and to our friends. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you uh, more, uh, Dove. Um, and, you know, ultimately, if you don't get tough with the Russians and the Chinese, they're just going to keep rolling over you, right? I mean, I, th I think what we're seeing at the Olympics uh, is ample evidence of that, right? After the 2014 Sochi Games, um, you know, the IOC... And, uh, you know, thanks to Russian whistleblowers, uncovered the largest state-sponsored doping program in history. And they've competed under Republic, uh, the Russian Olympic Committee. Uh, it's, you know, athletes that have had violations in the past. Nobody was punished. Nobody was banned from the sport permanently, except a couple of scientists uh, who can easily be replaced. And now the 15-year-old figure skater who, you know, led uh, the Russian team to gold, uh, you know, is found to have had a performance enhancing substance. And well, she's a minor. She didn't know. She knew she wanted to win. She wanted her team to win. Ultimately, right. You have to ban Russia from competing in the Olympics for a decade. And anybody well, else, by the way, if you're Norwegian or American, you have to be banned for life from the sport. Right. Yeah. So Vago, for sure. But I think the biggest message to come out of Beijing in this Olympic Games is the fact that Russia and China officially, formally, and in writing have indicated to the world that they are at a minimum coordinating and maybe right. more that. And there are still people in this town in Washington, good analysts with good backgrounds who insist that this is just transactional, that uh, you can't really put much money behind it because there's friction over Chinese incursion or a popular incursion, as it were, into Siberia, et cetera, et cetera. And I would simply point out that the, the Nazis and the Japanese never conducted joint exercises, which the Russians and the Chinese already have several times. Um, a denial is not just a river in Egypt, Dove. Um, Patrick, uh, thanks very much for being uh, patient, right? I mean, uh, Dove uh, did a perfect segue to the question which I was going to ask you, which is, uh, you know, Beijing and Moscow are now in what can be regarded as an alliance against the United States and its allies. Uh, if the shooting starts, does this actually become kind of a global conflict, uh, right? I mean, once the international community, for example, puts sanctions against the Russians or does stuff on SWIFT, right, tries to use, I mean, my, my concern with using or overusing sanctions is exactly Dove's, uh, Dove's point, right, which we've discussed on this program many, many times. It's a lever that works until it breaks off in your hand and folks decide like, look, for a variety of reasons, I don't want to be a hostage to you. Um, how, how does, in the event that something happens and we impose sanctions on the Russians, how do the Chinese use their retaliatory firepower and add this to the mix to make things much, much more complicated? Well, Vago, um, you know, both Russia and China are trying to write the post American hegemony world uh, and the set of rules. They have different visions uh, and Xi's vision is much bigger and broader 
frankly, than, than Putin's. I mean, Putin really wants to recreate the Soviet empire. She's looking globally. Um, you know, he's looking at Latin America, Africa, Southeast Asia, Central America, Eastern Europe. Uh, and he's got a very grand vision indeed for what uh, this, what he calls the multipolar dream or China dream. It's really just about Chinese power. Um, but will they go to war together or will they opportunistically carve out the sphere of influence in each region? And I think it's more at this point, the latter. I was talking to a very senior Chinese um, policy intellectual this week. Um, and, um, you know, it's clear that Chinese look at Russia now as their little brother, the way Stalin looked at China uh, back when they struck their 1950 alliance uh, between China and the Soviet Union then. Um, so they do have this solidified alignment that's looking very much like an alliance. Um, and they are cooperating across the military sphere with exercises, with hardware. Um, of course, the energy and economic dimension are critical for both China and Russia. Um, if, if Russia goes into Ukraine further, you know, do they do what Dove is saying? Do they take another slice? And does that mean China now maybe takes an offshore island of Taiwan? That's a real possibility that the Chinese weren't going to do that, but maybe they will do it if Russia goes in. So they're coordinating very closely on this. The fundamental question, you know, several fundamental questions are arising right now. Um, you know, in what is the nature of the competition with Russia and China? If it's a kind of war or a power competition, is it really about balance of power and revising the post-World War II order? Is it about technology and economic dominance? Or is it really about these hard power military tools that we're seeing wielded very well by Russia and China? And we're seeing America having trouble wielding sharp and hard power. Uh, uh, one small anecdote of that latter, and I know it's almost, uh, you know, an, uh, sort of an aside, uh, was to see Representative Luria's tweet response to the Department of the Navy's incomprehensible tweet about a very successful amphibious exercise for sea denial. And she said, look, I've been in the Navy a long time. I have no idea what you're saying here, Department of Navy, with your tweet. And I tweeted back that it means that the Navy's strong, but it doesn't know how to communicate it. And that's sort of a, a metaphor for the United States right now. We're very strong, but we don't know how to communicate it. Um, I, I couldn't uh, agree with you uh, more, right? I mean, uh, we did a great interview with the uh, chief, uh, 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 Francis Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Pierre Vandier. And I think he more thoughtfully encapsulated sea power, the role of sea power in future and cyber and space power in future conflict than I occasionally hear from American naval leaders. And it was clear and it was understandable. Uh, and I, I do believe that the Navy uh, has a communication problem. It also, I think, has uh, a bit of a thinking problem as well, right? I mean, you know, no other service spends uh, billions and billions of dollars building a class of warships knowing it's going to decommission them before it even uses them, right? I mean, I think that's an outrage, but uh, a, a different uh, a different issue. I, I want to go a little bit uh, deeper in a moment on, on Asia, Patrick, but I want to go to Jim um, to, to raise the Budapest Memorandum, right? The 1994 Budapest Memorandum. I know that I was a pain in your butt uh, among other people when you were in uh, the administration in never 2014. You were never a pain. Thank you very much. You're very charitable. But, you know, here was this uh, agreement in order to denuclearize Ukraine from uh, Russian nuclear weapons that were on the country's uh, territory. Uh, the Ukrainians didn't want to give them up uh, because they were concerned about their territorial integrity. The United States, uh, Great Britain, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus and Kazakhstan signed an agreement uh, giving uh, Ukraine security assurances. And now one of the signatories has has taken uh, a nice bite out of uh, Ukraine. Um, and none of the guarantors have really guaranteed, guaranteed anything, right? So even though we say that NATO is, you know, that Ukraine is not a NATO nation, ultimately it is a nation uh, with whom we signed an agreement with another major power. Um, what, what does that mean uh, in, this, in this context? I mean, is this just sort of collective amnesia? That's just an awkward agreement? Um, the Ukrainians have invoked this a couple of times. It doesn't seem like anybody really discusses it seriously. But why not? And what does it tell the rest of the world if the United States has signed a security guarantee with somebody and it doesn't abide by it? And is, is it conditional? Like, you know, the NATO charter really matters, but other agreements we struck didn't matter. I mean, well, I, know, what, what yeah. does that mean? 
Well, Vago, yeah, no, I, I see your larger point, but, but, but let, me, let me just make a distinction here uh, just between the NATO treaty, which is a treaty, uh, and versus the, the, the Budapest memorandum, which is not a treaty. Uh, and uh, and so it's different, but 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 you know, but uh, the, the larger point is well taken, and I think uh, there's a lot of uh, I can't even find the word frustration, anger, embarrassment, awkwardness among the signatories of Budapest. Uh, that um, in fact uh, the Russians called our bluff; they tore that to little shreds, uh, and um, and and we find ourselves. Uh, you know, not in a place where we can march in and try to, you know, say what we would say what we said in an, in this agreement. And again, it's not like Article Five of the of the NATO treaty. This is this is an agreement. And yeah, I would imagine others who might have similar, you know, agreements with other nations, including the United States. Uh, you know, I think they would look on that uh, uh, and and say, uh, well, well, what what do these things mean at the end of the day? But I. But I think that's also something that in the discourse of international relations, as nations deal with each other and they have all different kinds of agreements, memorandums of understanding, et cetera, et cetera, uh, you know, they are good and we back them up until we reach a situation where we can't. And I think with Budapest, uh, that is, uh, that's a, a great example of where uh, I think despite best intentions and the feeling back in the day when it was signed that this was something that was 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 not going to be hard to agree to you know shit happens uh, sorry for the language you can bleep me out but i think this is an example of where we reached the stage with this particular agreement that unless we were willing to go to war we weren't going to be able to back it up and of course the russians knew that and they called our bluff on it and so we all sat there and and marched up and down and were angry about it but uh but, but there you are. But that certainly adds to, though, uh, in the West, this, uh, this anger and this worry about the Russians, that they so easily could come in. And not just that agreement, but they've also torn up some other agreements, some more solemn than others, like the Helsinki Final Act, to be right. blunt. So, you know, I think, I think with Budapest, that's going to be on the pile of agreements, whether treaties or not, that the Russians have violated, that are building up this angst and this determination to do something about this this autocrat who's now marching across Europe. Uh, and uh, and I think it's also a, uh, a lesson to everyone about just how far, um, you know, in terms of agreements, just how far that nations can go to back up something. Uh, and, and, and when it comes to going to war to enforce those, nations are not necessarily gonna do that with, with something like, like the Budapest Agreement. Uh, well, I mean, right. I mean, you know, schoolyard bully manages to shake everybody in the yard down for money. Nobody confronts them. He's going to keep shaking you down for money. And I think uh, you're right. And I think uh, that that uh, bully uh, shook down uh, Ukraine and the other signatories of Budapest shook us down. And I think we've now reached a point where this bully uh, where we've got all of our friends together. We're surrounding this bully and we're beginning to shove one another. If you want to keep the playground analogy going, we're beginning to shove one another, and we'll see what happens in terms of the 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 the, the punch being thrown, and uh, and I think that's where we are. But I, I mean, but this is why I think that if you put the international community through this kind of trauma, ultimately, whether or not you invade, you need to be punished, and that's what I believe is what is fundamentally out of whack with the way that we do things. We are not, or to do things to Russia that will be painful for Russia going forward, whether or not they, they proceed with an invasion. There has to be a price for doing this right. instead of him being rewarded and walking away from it, literally being like, I made you guys jump. I'm the puppet master and you guys are nothing but a bunch of wood with string. Um, and, and I do believe that that's exactly how he looks at it. And in fact, I, I almost could see, you know, I, I'm not trying to, you know, because I think all of this stuff is ultimately backfiring on him, right? I mean, even Russians are saying, why is it we were are considering killing our Ukrainian brothers, right? I mean, so I think his window in some respects may be closing. He expected to divide NATO. It's making NATO a little bit stronger. Uh, it's bringing countries together. Uh, you know, even domestically, it's not playing, uh, playing uh, uh, necessarily as well uh, as he might have expected. But, you know, I, I could even see somebody being, being you know, a completely nonplussed. Eh, it might be just more business, business as usual than anything else, actually, the Olympic doping. Uh, again, I'm very strong that anybody who does it has, has got to be out of sport. And that's, uh, you know, 
It's like sexual assault. If you take it seriously and you punish it, and you know, even if you have to throw 10,000 people out of the military every year or every month, you'll, you'll, you'll tackle the problem. Dove, a uh, very thoughtful uh, article, uh, Britain, China, and the Falkland Islands, Why America Must Weigh In, uh, that ran in the Hill uh, this morning. And I commend people to read it because it's very, very thoughtful. Uh, walk us through the, the case, right? Because Patrick mentioned Latin America. And, yeah. and I should have made the tie-in a little bit earlier than now. No, no, actually, I'm glad that Jim spoke. Uh, and then you sounded very optimistic about NATO being uh, more uh, united on this issue. I don't buy that, quite honestly, uh, because if I were Mr. Putin, I would say, hey, look, uh, I've already gotten the Americans uh, and NATO to agree to negotiate on issues that were non-negotiable until a couple of months ago. So I've already won in some respects. Number uh, the, two, the weapons, the weapons deployment, uh, right? That we and and exercise and exercises no, that I, we would. The, the, yeah, but but those are are relatively minor. Number one, number two is not all of NATO is involved. Remember, NATO is thirty countries, and not all thirty are involved in all of this, and not all thirty are exercised by all of this. Uh, and finally. We haven't done anything preemptive. We are still locked in. I mean, yes, we've sent some troops to the border uh, where we have NATO allies, but we've done nothing directly to Russia at all. And uh, we are waiting to see what Russia does. And if, as I predict, Russia will do a little enough to prevent Germany from cutting off Nord Stream 2, we have a major crisis. Uh, and the problem is that we are being defensive and not forward thinking. And we've talked on this show about the lack of a strategy. Uh, we, this is what this China business in Latin America is all about. We tend to compartment everything. The Chinese, yes, the Russians, they may not be the regional power that Obama called them, but they're in the Middle East and they're in Europe. They're not all over Asia, at least not yet, although they're an Asian country too. But China has just signed a massive Belt and Road Agreement, uh, over $20 billion, $23 billion worth of investments with Argentina. That's our backyard. And not only that, they've dived with both feet into the old Falklands Malvinas dispute, calling the islands Malvinas, basically thumbing their noses at the British and essentially buying entirely the Argentine line that this needs to be negotiated, even though the Falkland Islanders are British citizens and don't want to go anywhere. So we have to finally start thinking globally about China, which has been Patrick's message for quite some time now, and thinking more, uh, I wouldn't say offensive is the wrong word, but thinking less defensively about Russia. And all of that calls for a completely different mindset on the part of the administration, and not just the administration, uh, a lot of Democratic supporters of the administration, and frankly, Republican isolationists. I mean, we're seeing a coalition that hasn't been like this since the 1930s, and we know what happened because of that. Patrick, um, let's talk a little bit about the Indo-Pacific strategy, uh, right? I mean, very big week, uh, the administration getting ready to roll that out, right? Kurt, Kurt Campbell's uh, baby, uh, we have a new Pacific partnership, uh, that is part of that with the United States, Britain, France, Japan, Australia, and uh, New Zealand, uh, an important agreement bringing important European powers with, with stakes and interests in the region uh, as well. Um, and, and then we had a quad meeting in Melbourne uh, that uh, sounds more like an alliance uh, than, than a talking shop. Walk, walk us through what to expect from the Indo-Pacific strategy, the importance of the new Pacific partnership, and uh, certainly what um, what happened in Melbourne and why it's important. Well, let me start with Melbourne. This was the fourth meeting of the foreign ministers of uh, the four quad countries, Australia, Japan, India, and the United States. And in the past, um, including at the last leaders summit that was in person at the White House, in fact, and the second one, this, this foreign ministers meeting is largely preparing the next leaders meeting, which will be hosted by Prime Minister Kishida in Tokyo, probably in late May. Um, they've been at pains to say, this is about what we're for, not what we're against. You know, it's what four great democracies bring to the table, especially bring to the Indo-Pacific region. So it's this positive agenda for the Indo-Pacific. What we saw Secretary of State Blinken do in Melbourne was respond essentially to the Russian threat to Ukraine. 
uh, because he did two things. He put Ukraine on the table right at the center of it. He said, um, you know, the reason we're working hard to defend the core principles threatened by Russia and Ukraine is because those are the same principles that are crucial for stability in our region, in the Pacific, in, in the world. Um, and um, he also uh, therefore made it global and, and put security on the agenda. And, and Foreign Minister Marissa Payne, the host, was very much uh, supportive of this, but she did focus more on the Indo-Pacific. Um, it was interesting, though. This is the gap. This is the problem we have with allies and partners trying to pull them together. India, maybe predictably, uh, especially from an Australian point of view, which has been you know, wary of how much is India part of this uh, quad, um, external affairs minister, uh, Dr. Uh, Jai Shankar, um, gave the Russians a pass, in effect, because he stuck, he stuck to the, the earlier script of the Quad, which is focused on what we are for, not what we're against. And he completely sidestepped the question about the Ukraine message that we stand against aggression uh, and, you know, in for Ukraine's sovereignty as for the sovereignty of other nations. Um, so that's step one, this Quad meeting, very important. It looks more like an alliance, but it also shows the limits of, of this alliance-like effect. Um, I can add, by the way, that the Russians and the Chinese have their own gaps in their alignment as well. They're closer to an alliance. And yet, when you think about the quid pro quo they struck in Beijing, it was the one China principle, basically Russia saying, yeah, Taiwan is yours, China. But from China's perspective, it was just no NATO expansion, not, not the annexation of Crimea is legitimate, or not that the use of force would be legitimate. Um, so it, there was asymmetry there. They weren't really reciprocal. Well, we also have problems with our own uh, allies and partners. Now, Blinken goes to Fiji, first Secretary of State, to visit this small island in 37 years. Um, he was supposed to be gathering other Pacific Island leaders. They're not coming because of COVID, understandably. But I think he will hammer home this new Pacific Partners Agreement, where, uh, as you mentioned, Vago, France and other countries have a key role to play in protecting the maritime security, working on infrastructure, working on both hard and soft power dimensions of, of the Pacific. Very important piece of the puzzle. Um, remember that uh, it was Vice President Pence who went to Papua New Guinea uh, as part of the APEC summit um, and uh, back in 2018. And now the United States, by the way, has confirmed that they will host the APEC summit uh, in 2023 next year. And at the center of that, they hope will be the uh, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, which is essentially the uh, the, the large multilateral economic trade deal for the digital age about rules and trade and exports in technology that the United States wants to cement and sort of contain China's uh, sort of approach, including on Belt and Road Initiative, including on Made in China 2025 and other initiatives. Now you talk about the Indo-Pacific strategy. Okay, this is where it all comes together, right? This is what Kirk Campbell's been working on. It's finished, they're ready to lay out the Indo-Pacific strategy and they want it to be less sort of harsh than the Trump policy about a free and open Indo-Pacific, which, which really centered on China competition so frontally. So they're gonna to try to make it a little bit uh, like the daughter of the free and open Indo-Pacific and the son of the Obama pivot or rebalance strategy. Um, but there are a lot of details in here. It's far reaching, it's got a very positive agenda. It's working with allies and partners. It's also trying to put down the guardrails with these big powers, Russia and China. But at the end of the day, are we wielding enough power hard enough? And already there are calls to say, back off Biden, back off Washington, you're being too aggressive. So let me just two data points today. Anatole Levin, bright guy, writing in foreign policy says, look, we've tried to push Russia out of Europe. It's time to recreate the concept of Europe in which they're central to it. Um, Jane Perlis, very bright talking about China and talking about the Nixon opening, saying, where is the diplomacy for dealing with China? We have to go back to opening with China. The problem is that neither Moscow nor Beijing seem that interested in diplomacy. They seem interested in disrupting our agenda, pushing their own agenda, weakening our allies and partners. Uh, and that's the problem here. So there's been very little room for middle ground. And the Biden administration has got to be very tough. And yet it has to put together still a strategy for pulling together allies and partners so that we're strong enough to stand up and withstand this kind of threat to uh, the world order and the rules-based system. 
Um, I, I, I think uh, all of these partnerships, as, as you said, uh, Patrick and Dove and, uh, and Jim, um, right? I mean, it, all, it's, it's great to have allies and partners bring them together to be able to negotiate. But ultimately, you also have to deliver the capabilities and your strategic documents and your budgetary documents have to be aligned to be able to signal whether you're serious about it. Um, and uh, to, uh, to that end, um, right. I mean, Patrick, you didn't mention climate is an important part of this. There is a time and place for that. Obviously, uh, nations in the Indo-Pacific are concerned about, you know, um, man-made climate change driving sea level rise. Right. So that's a legitimate place to put climate change. Uh, but I think that a lot of folks are very concerned that if they open this document up uh, and, you know, find that the single most important role of the Department of Defense is, is climate change and sustainability, that kind of misses the point. Should the Pentagon be sustainable? Yes. Should it be, you know, contributing blatantly or unnecessarily, unnecessarily to climate change? No, but that's not its job. It's, its job is to furnish the nation with the hard power it needs to be able to have effective diplomacy uh, and, and the like. Go ahead, Jim. No, you're absolutely right. And I want to throw it into the, the discussion that the NATO strategic concept has the same problem. You know, uh, a lot of the, the, the trajectory of the strategic concept that NATO drafting was towards climate change and the pandemics and dealing with the new security threats of Europe as they looked last year. Well, that's, you know, if, if they open up, uh, if, they, if they approve at the Madrid summit coming up, a strategic concept that opens up with the first paragraph being climate change, you know, <laughs> nothing about, you know, you find Russia, page 25, one paragraph, then they've got a problem there too. Uh, and, and, and so I think this is going to test uh, in, in the alliance, the uh, the the unity in terms of allies agreeing on this on the on the same direction in terms of what the priority should be for NATO it's a very similar issue. Well, well let, me, let me just jump in. Up. Well, I, I think the problem is exactly that the alliance is going to be united. They're going to be united in the wrong direction. I think a lot of the Europeans still would like to believe that Russia is somebody else's problem and that climate is the top priority, and there are still a lot of people in the administration, and John Kerry has a lot of influence that would prefer to do the same thing. I agree. And, and that is, is really frightening. I, hey, Vargo, can I just make one very can't agree big, with you more. Yes, Patrick, of course. Very big political point here um, in which this context is occurring uh, geopolitically, and that's Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin think they're going to be leaders for life. And they think Biden has no successor and is going to lose the midterm election. Um, I, I, I'm not saying I want this to happen. I'm just saying, unfortunately, th that is a huge part of who's controlling the future agenda, um, including whether it's climate change or hard security or all of these issues together. Uh, I, I, uh, I, I agree that there is a very powerful right. I mean, part of what Putin is also trying to do is to try to make uh, Biden look bad. Uh, effectively, um, has uh, very briefly, because we, we're running out of time, uh, and I, I still have two questions, and I want to bring Michael uh, into this. Um, how, how was the president's performance on Lester Holt yesterday? I mean, he said the painfully obvious, uh, which was, hey, Americans, you know, you know, people didn't listen to 38 warnings in Afghanistan in the expectation that we would come and collect, you know, the 100 or, or you know, a couple of hundred Americans who refused to leave. We're just letting you know, like we cannot go into Ukraine to find Americans, you know, if it's been invaded by by the Russians. Um, you know, folks told me that the administration deserves high marks, right? Has been uh, herding cats uh, effectively, has been engaging well, right? Has been working a new Pacific Partnership Agreement showing it can walk and chew gum. I have a piece coming out later today on that. Um, you know, how did how did the president do, right? As a as a nonpartisan friend of mine said. Uh, he did better than when you put him, you know, in an hour and a half press conference. Dove, do you want to sort of start us off on, on how you thought, how you think the administration is doing in this particular crisis, uh, you know, even though we might have concerns and, and how the president did uh, overall in his address? And if you want to discuss Afghanistan, take that opportunity now, because I was going to end with a question uh, on uh, the president's decision to take $7 billion in frozen Afghan assets, put half of it to the 9-11 fund and use the other half for humanitarian aid at a, at a time the the you know afghans are starving to death 
Well, on the last point, uh, I think that's the right decision. Um, one of the biggest problems we had in Afghanistan is we tended to flood them with money and all it did was fuel corruption. And as long as we can make sure that the money that's going for humanitarian assistance really goes for that and doesn't wind up in either Swiss banks or mansions in Dubai, uh, then it's certainly the right way to go. Um, the overall, uh, you know, yes, the president uh, seems to have held up pretty well. He's right to tell people to get out of Ukraine. It's a lot easier to get out of Ukraine than to get out of Afghanistan. Uh, and so people ought to be listening. Uh, on Afghanistan, though, I think the president's rejection of the uh, army report uh, was a big mistake. Um, the army is very, very good at looking at its own faults. It did a great job on uh, reviewing how things went in Iraq. And, uh, you know, basically what the army was saying was once again, state and defense were totally out of sync uh, and uh, that the state people simply did not want to face the reality of what was going on on the ground in Afghanistan. And what that does is make a mockery of everything we say about whole of government. We still do not operate as a whole of government uh, institution and of course, because Russia and China are run by autocrats, they do run whole of government. It's something we need to focus on. But generally, I would say that the president was right about telling people to get out of Ukraine. I think he he handled himself pretty well. And, uh, you know, there were no obvious slips, except for, of course, uh, afterwards, his rejection of that uh, army report. Um, let me, um, we're almost out of time. Michael, you've been very patient uh, listening to this conversation. I just want to pull you in before uh, we, we bring it home. Um, anything you want to add to this point? And then very quickly also, uh, right last week, we discussed uh, the Republican National Committee's uh, decision to censure Liz Cheney uh, and Adam Kinzinger this week. Uh, the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, denounced uh, that decision, said it, you know, said that what happened on January 6th was uh, you know, was not a legitimate political protest. Uh, I'm going to have to bear that in mind in the event that for whatever reason in the future, I have a meltdown that involves smearing feces uh, in a federal building. <laughs> I'll try to use that as a, as a defense. I, I would never do that. I'm, I'm just kidding. Um, and then the revelation that President Trump, who got elected in part by hammering away on and, and Republicans who succeeded in hammering away on Hillary Clinton's, uh, you know, private email server, uh, now revelations that you know, the former president not only uh, was a serial document destroyer, uh, but apparently clogged White House toilets with torn documents uh, that were re recovered. Um, I don't even want to know what that operation was like and where in the archives those papers go. Uh, and then, you know, took top secret papers with them to, to Mar-a-Lago. Does it, does it matter at all? I mean, does any of this change anything? Republicans have been remarkably muted of, of criticism. You know what I mean? They, they don't see the irony or the hypocrisy in this. Does any of that, does any of this matter? No. <laughs> so, look, okay. I think, you know, we've seen- Everybody, thanks very much for joining us. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we've seen a, a difference between how Republicans in the Senate and Republicans in the House have handled this uh, and other issues relating to the former president. I mean, I think when we talked about the RNC meeting last week, you know, I, I, we obviously didn't anticipate the big story that would, would, would arise from the censure of Kinzinger and, uh, and Liz Cheney and the language that they would be using. But uh, on the Senate side, I mean, you've seen Senate um, Minority Whip John Thune, <clears throat> you've seen Senator John Cornyn, Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, and, and of course, Senator McConnell come out very strongly against uh, what the uh, RNC had done, what Ron McDaniel had done. So, uh, and, and it goes back to how they handled January 6th. I mean, after uh, the insurrection was you know, put down, they came back to vote and the Senate you nearly know, seized the moment and very few senators voted against certification where in the House, a lot of people did vote against certification. Um, you know, they're both different cultures. They both have different, um, you know, smaller voting base to, to report to. And, you know, we're seeing more Republicans who I think are more mainstream moderate, but still worried about their primaries and doing what they can to appeal to the Trump wing of the party just in order to, to hold on to power. And, you know, a lot of them are just hiding under the desk, rubbing their lucky rabbit's foot, just waiting for all this to go away. And it just doesn't seem to go away, uh, but they're just going to keep ignoring it. I also think in the end for the voters, uh, the issues that are going to matter most to them are, you know, the issues that we've talked about before. I mean, inflation, you know, crime, 
um, you know, what's going on uh, internationally, things that affect gas prices, things that affect their pocketbook. Like, I think, you know, some of this Trump stuff could matter in some of the districts that are very close, only because I don't think, you know, whereas the country voted for, I think, a return to normalcy with Biden and really didn't get that, they're not voting. People don't want to return to, to Trumpism. And I think some of these candidates that may win some of these primaries uh, may be running on that theme that may not sell in some of these close districts. Um, I, I, I think it's also interesting that um, inflation is high, but the economy is red hot. It's growing faster than it's ever. More people are employed. More, the government put more people in people's oh. pockets than probably they should have. And, and only in the United States are the people who benefited from that largesse angry ultimately that they have to pay 7% more well, when they probably ended up getting a little bit more than that from the government net net. I mean, this is so, almost to me like government, keep your hands off my Medicare. Right? Well, I mean, look, I, I, I agree to a point where I think, look, inflation, I think is, is a serious problem we have to figure out, but it gets back to what you know Patrick Cronin said earlier, you know, that we're strong, but we don't know how to communicate. And this, this administration is, it does not do a good job of communicating things that they have done well and the successes that they've had. Uh, but you know, also, you know, what, what Dove said about the defense budget, you know, for F23, what, what he's hearing is exactly what I'm hearing, is that the number is going to be, uh, I think, a 2% increase over what they submitted last year. So, it, again, it's, it's a cut. And, you know, one of the ways that they've got an agreement on a top line for the omnibus was because of the situation in Ukraine. You know, that, you know, there's a classified briefing that warned lawmakers that what the CR is doing and they see that the world is a dangerous place. They talked about the alliance between Russia and, and China. And, you know, people on the Hill get that. And Democrats and Republicans both get that. And the administration doesn't seem to. And I think it's going to send a very bad and weak signal to the world when the administration sends over a budget request for defense that's going to be a cut. And already Democrats on the Hill, I mean, not just Republicans, but Democrats are talking about how they're going to have to ramp it up again uh, later this year. Uh, and and that, that, I think, is uh, mirrored. Uh, both on the House and the Senate side by Adam Smith, as well as by Jack Reed and their ranking members. True. Everybody, thanks very much. Terrific conversation as usual. We could go another uh, hour uh, with all of this. Uh, thanks very much. Have a great weekend, a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.